my unlock moment was, and I can remember this very vividly, I was walking with a mentor of mine in New York City. We were walking down 6th Avenue, and I was lamenting about how challenging it was to live up to all these expectations that I think people had for me. I shared with him a story about being at a conference, being a keynote speaker, walking into the men's room and having someone come up to me in the men's room and ask for an autograph for the book and how strange that was. After I went on for a bit, my mentor, he kind of turned to me and he said, look, it sounds to me, Jim, that you might be afraid of success. That really resonated. And I started to think about that more and I recognized that, yeah, maybe that was something that was in the back of my mind. And, and once I could confront it, I think it helped me move past and gain the confidence that's needed to continue to write. That was my first book. I'm in the middle of writing book number seven as we speak, so <laughs> yeah. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. It's my great pleasure to welcome a world-leading coach to the podcast who's someone I've been engaging with for a while. With over 300 articles, 70 media interviews, and six business books, James or Jim Kerr, is one of the most prolific authors of thought leadership in the business and is top 10 ranked by Thinkers360 in coaching, leadership, culture, strategy, change management, and the future of work. He's been featured in Fast Company, Business Week, Psychology Today, and Bloomberg, and he's the author of Indispensable, Build and Lead a Company Customers Can't Live Without. He's also the host of the Indispensable Conversation podcast, where I was delighted to be featured just a few weeks ago. I'm looking forward to hearing Jim's take on the issues facing emerging and established leaders today and how they can navigate the pressure and uncertainty to build great company cultures. Jim Kerr, it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Uh, Gary, it's great to be here with you today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Fantastic. Thanks so much for accepting the invitation. Now, I know quite a bit about the work you do today, but I actually don't know a whole lot about your origin story. So. Where do we need to start in your story to understand the person you are today? Well, you know, what a great first question. I, I, I will tell you that, you know, very humble beginnings, spent a lot of time thinking about what was a path to sort of create the life I wanted to create. Recognized early on that education was a big part of that. Uh, pursued that with great vigor and ultimately was blessed 
by having a couple of uh, really important mentors come along very early in my career. And uh, they served as, as great guides along the way to help me really sort of catapult into uh, all the stuff that you're talking about in the introduction. And where did that all start out for you? Where, where, where were your first ventures into thought leadership? Yeah, early on, I had the opportunity to write my very first book. And this is back in the days before there was, you know, widespread use of the internet or even email, quite frankly. I mean, I can remember writing the, uh, the manuscript and sending it by regular post to the publisher who was Wiley and Sons at the time. And um, just going through that whole process of getting that thing into production. And, and once it hit, uh, I, I was really blessed early on. I was under the age of 30 when that first book came out to, uh, to have a great deal of opportunities as a result of that. So I was invited to speak at a lot of conferences and I had people calling me up and asking for advice based on the content of the book and so on. And, and that was sort of the beginnings of, of me recognizing that thought leadership uh, was an important part of contributing to the betterment of leadership thinking. And then that was all kind of the start of it, I guess I'd say. And I think that for people that achieve success very early on, it can be quite daunting, actually, to have that sense of, am I really able to, to do this? So when you think back to a moment of remarkable clarity, an unlocked moment of, of, of clarity in your life or career. Is, is there something around there that, that really stands out for you? Absolutely. I mean, you know, sort of my unlocked moment was, and I can remember this very, uh, very vividly. I was walking with a mentor of mine in New York City. We were walking down, you know, Sixth Avenue, and I was lamenting about how challenging it was to live up to all these expectations that I think people had for me as a result of that book. And I was sharing with him some of the um, the strange things that happened as a result of that. I, I shared with him a story about being at a conference, being a keynote speaker. Uh, walking into the men's room and having someone come up to me in the men's room and ask for an autograph for the book and how strange that was. And after I went on for a bit, my mentor, his name was Jim Johnson. He, he's no longer with us, but, but what a great soul. He kind of turned to me and he said, look, it sounds to me, Jim, that you might be afraid of success. And I think, uh, that really resonated. I started to think about that more and I recognized that, yeah, maybe that was something that was in the back of my mind. And, and once I could confront it, I think it helped me, you know, move past and, and gain the confidence that's needed to continue to write. And that, that was my first book and I'm in the middle of writing book number seven as we speak. So amazing. Yeah. And it's a really interesting phrase, you know, you, maybe you're, you're afraid of success because we, we think of, imposter syndrome, that kind of thing as I'm, I'm not sure that I'm really capable of doing this thing that I've been thrust into. But being afraid of success is something a little bit different, I think. Uh, what, what really was that for you when you reflected on him offering you that phrase? Yeah, I mean, it, it was, uh, and again, I, I credit him with knowing exactly what to say to me to make me ponder the, the possibilities and so on. So he, he worded it just right. 
And rather than sort of a fear of failure, it was a fear of success. And I, and I think uh, what that translated for me at the time was, you know, am I getting in my own way with all this concern? You know, so, so what? Somebody asked you for an autograph. You know, that's that's fine. You know, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. And and why is that? Why is that stressful? I started to recognize, like, yeah, if I'm contributing. Uh, something that that somebody really uh, got something out of, and they want to memorialize it in some fashion, then then so be it. That there's nothing wrong with that. You started practicing your autograph after that moment, I bet. <laughs> well, I signed a lot of baseballs when I was a kid, so <laughs> <laughs> you had to do a, a really quick scribble. Yeah. So a lot of the people that when I talk to them about their unlock moment, I describe it as being like a it becomes a bit of a lens on your purpose. So something that you knew then that you didn't know before as a result of that moment of clarity helps you find that path, find that sort of purpose-driven path. And for you, you know, you've had this incredible journey of creating thought leadership over now many decades, but it's a real inner drive for you. This is not a sort of business imperative. It's a, you want to do that. You want to, you want to create ideas and share ideas. How do you describe it in terms of purpose? Yeah, you know, I, I guess I may have grown up with a bit of a chip on my shoulder. You know, I grew up in a, an industrial area. Most people worked in the local factories. It was a bit of a remarkable step to leave town and not take a job in one of those factories. Again, education was the key for me, get going out there and you know, not only did I get my bachelor's degree, but I went on and got a master's degree. And then further, I wanted to write a book. And, you know, it was all about trying to prove that I was somehow worthy of, of more. And, and I found that, you know, being able to, early on in my career anyway, write about what I was learning and what I was thinking and how to make something better than it was, was powerful because people responded to it. And at the same time that first book came out, I also was a columnist in a, a couple of three magazines. And and that was pretty heady stuff for somebody, again, of my age, because people weren't doing that then. Hmm. Today, anybody can write a book. You can self-publish it. Anyone can write an article. They can have their own blog. But back then, you actually had to convince an editor that what you were writing about was good enough to buy. And whether that was in a magazine or a, or a book publisher or whatever. So, so again, it, it just uh, taking that risk of, of trying to put ideas out there in the form of the written word was, was something I was willing to do. I had strong encouragement from another mentor, a guy named Doc Schilke. He was the guy that first encouraged me to write an article. And sure enough, it got published and it helped me gain the confidence needed to one day write a book a few years later. You said that you were you're proving something to to someone. Who who are you proving it to? I think it may have been early on. It was all the naysayers, you know, people that I grew up with that that wanted me to be just like them. You know, like just take a job in the factory. It's great. You know, it's union wages, and you can have a living, and you can buy a house and have a car, and you know that was what their expectations were of themselves. And I, I had something more that I was trying to prove and, and, and wanted to have for myself. And, and that required to go 
past the boundaries of, if you will, of the hometown and, and get out there and and do something that, you know, could inspire others to, to work harder and, and be better at what they did too. Hmm. I, I really like the way you describe that to, to inspire others to, to do it, to do it too. In, in the coaching work that you do today with, with leaders, do you see these kind of unlocked moments? Do you see people having these, you know, sort of remarkable moments of sudden clarity, as well as that sort of incremental, you know, little sort of steps of clarity? Do you see people having those sort of major breakthrough moments? Yes, I do. And I, you know, the, some of the most rewarding work that I do these days is when someone comes back to me after um, being a coaching client and says, you know, Jim, not only have I applied the stuff that you and I worked on in my leadership work, but I'm applying it in my personal life. Mm -hmm. I, I've taught my kids how to do this self-reflection stuff. Uh, <laughs> I've worked with my sister on her self-talk and improving it and making a more positive, having a more positive outlook, you know, as we go through our daily life and so on. So, so for me, those are representative of people having those unlocked moments and, and applying some of the stuff that they learned in session with me to not only their business and professional life, but also to their personal life. Mm, that's very interesting. And it works both ways. I, I was in a conversation this week with, with a coaching client where it was the other way around. They, they, they were doing it in their personal life, but not in their, in their work life. And they were thinking about how they wanted to sort of set up leadership of the team and how they wanted to delegate and create a sense of responsibility in their team. And they went, I'm really good at doing this with my kids. But actually, I back away from doing it in the workplace, which is quite interesting. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. you, you, see it, you see it both ways, actually. Do you see that too? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I, it's kind of, uh, I was smiling as you were describing that interaction because, yeah, it comes up quite a bit in coaching. And one of the things that, that I try to do when folks uh, have that realization is to help them see that to a large extent, being a leader of others is sort of like being a parent to children. You know, there is that notion of people looking to you for guidance, looking to you for direction, looking for permission, you know, all, all those kinds of things that we might attribute to parenting is also applicable as leaders, you know, and at the end of the day, and in both cases, it's about them, not us, you know, it's, Leading is about helping those that we lead, and, and parenting is about helping kids that are our children. It's it's about them and what they can do next, and not about whether we're quote unquote, you know, the boss, hmm. or that we have the title. You know, that that's the least of it. And I know that a lot of the work you do is in consulting and advisory, as well as in in coaching. What are the the most pressing issues that you're seeing leaders dealing with in you know here in 2023? What are the kinds of things that are coming up for people? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the big things that I think we're still wrestling through is what's it going to look like when the dust settles post pandemic? You know, are we going to be in a completely remote work setting like we were might maybe in 2020 when the pandemic first sort of took hold? Or might we have a hybrid, which seems like what you know what's happening at the moment? Or will some of the old school leaders who are really making or placing an emphasis on getting back to the office win out? Will we be back in a in a work setting that's reminiscent of maybe what it was in 2019? 
before the pandemic where everybody was in an office. So I see leaders sort of wrestling with that and all of the related elements to it. You know, what, what's it mean to craft a culture that is remote or hybrid? Mm. Well, you know, how important is it? How do we build the connection we need to be effective leaders through a computer screen, you know, through things like Zoom? Is that really something that we should be continuing to try to refine, or is it something that we should be trying to migrate from back to more in-person contact and so on? So, so I see a lot of, of energy being spent there. I saw some really interesting research this week, actually, about, about coaching in person and remote. And, and when I started, my professional coaching training was early in the pandemic, and the Zoom coaching thing was still quite a, quite a new thing. I've been doing quite a lot of work online with various clients in, in the tech industry before I did my coaching training. So I was quite comfortable with a kind of Teams or a Zoom environment. But for a lot of coaches, it was really, really new. And I think there was a going in assumption that in-person was better, but Zoom was a, a sort of okay interim if you needed to in the pandemic. And the research coming out this week that Professor Jonathan Passmore and, and, and team have, have been talking about on LinkedIn actually shows that the outcomes from uh, online coaching can be just as good as the outcomes of in-person coaching if it's managed really, really effectively. And I think my, my instinct is that that's the same with team leadership, that it can be done to just as high a level in, in a fully remote team or as a hybrid team, but it is hard and it's using skills that a lot of leaders just don't have. So when they're struggling and they're finding it more difficult to manage and create a, a culture and a team environment, you know, remotely, it, it's not because it can't be done, but it's because they don't know how to do it or they're not effective at, at putting in place the kind of steps to, to make it effective. So in, in your experience, is that your view that do you share that view that it's possible to get just as good outcomes remotely or, or hybrid? And if so, what, what are the things that make that most successful? You know, Gary, I, I don't know if I agree completely. I, I, I do believe that we can be effective leaders in a remote setting. And you can point to even pre-pandemic situations, let's say a sales group, right, that have remote workers by region. They're not always together in the office. They're they maybe had times where there were, were in-person touch points, but for the most part, it was done remotely. So, so yes, great example of successful, you know, leadership being done, you know, on a remote basis. However, I think what I see as some weaknesses or maybe shift that to areas for opportunity for improvement rests in what's not happening for the most part in remote leadership circles. What's not happening is we're not developing younger people to the, the degree that we do when work is in person. You know, I could be in a meeting, I could see a younger, less experienced individual operating in some way that may impact their career growth. I could come out of that meeting, I could casually walk up to them, ask them to hop in an office for a minute, give them some coaching, give them some advice, maybe do some uh, role playing, you know, so that they can see optional ways to behave from what they may have done in the meeting. And they'll walk out, I hope, stronger for it. But what happens on a Zoom call 
in that same meeting, in that same behavior, seldom are leaders going back to that person and providing on the spot coaching, on the spot advice. You know, why? Because we have our next meeting to get to, you know, and, and we move on to the Zoom call, to the next Zoom call. And, you know, maybe you give that person feedback sometime, but if you give it to them two weeks later, they're not learning. You know, it's hard for them to remember, like, what did I do? What, what meeting are you talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess so, you know, versus on the spot, in person. And that's not even talking about things like body language and eye contact and presence and all the other things that I think we can help, particularly younger, less experienced people develop when we're working with them in person. Yeah, I really agree with that. I remember when I first started in, in the workplace you know, 20 odd years ago and you know the benefit of sitting just opposite somebody who was a year ahead of you who could kind of show you the ropes and help you figure out how to mm -hmm. do stuff, You know whether that's in you know like Excel and PowerPoint or how to use online systems, how to put your expenses in, all those kinds of things. You know, mm -hmm. Something that I felt was very, very apparent very early on in the pandemic, in, and at that time, so when the pandemic first hit, I was actually in a leadership role in, in retail. And we were talking, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen, how, what the trajectory of things was going to be. But we talked very early on about the challenge with hybrid, particularly for blue chip organizations based in a big city somewhere, is for the younger people or, or you know lower level people in the organization you're asking them to to live in or around the big city which is an expensive place to live so they've you know mm -hmm. we've got a small place because they need to be in the office two or three days a week in in the hybrid model but then the other days that they're not in the office they can't be in a space big enough to be able to work really effectively so they end up working on their kitchen table or they work end up sitting on their mm -hmm. bed or sitting on the sofa trying to work, which mm -hmm. is just in, ineffective. The fully hybrid model, the, sorry, the fully remote model would enable them to live somewhere where they could maybe afford somewhere a little bit bigger to give them a, a good sort of homeworking environment. But then, of course, you can't be in the office at all because you're just too far away. Or the, you know, the, the fully in-person model kind of works as it, as it used to do. How can you navigate a hybrid model and still create a working environment that works for those younger or, or lower paid people to be able to, you know, have a good home working environment as well as what they have in the office. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's sort of the inflection point that we're, we're at right now. You know, you're seeing employers demanding, you know, in-person days of the week kind of thing. So you've got to be in the office Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Well, that doesn't really alleviate the challenge that you just described. You know, you've got to be near the office. That means I might as well be in the office, right? And as a consequence, I, I think that you're starting to see folks say, well, if I can't be fully remote, then I'm going to find another job. And there was, you know, there's definitely some stuff that happened even through last year where we saw, saw that occur. But now it's happened. Like, I don't know that this is going to continue, right? And the more we're seeing larger companies say, get back in the office, the more you're going to have to. Because mm -hmm. there's just, you know, the, the, that shift, that migratory type of thing happened, has happened already. People are where they are. 
Uh, if their employer says we've got to be in the office, and wherever you move to, you're going to find the, you know, an employer. So, so I kind of feel like there's been sort of a normalization that's that's eh, probably continuing to take place, but certainly the bulk of it began last year, and now we're seeing it shake out even further now. But we'll see. I, I, I think it's still we're still kind of figure it out. Yeah, and if you were to look in your crystal ball and sort of forecast forward maybe three to five years' time, let's assume that we don't have any more pandemic regrowth, if things continue to settle over the coming years, where do you think, based on, on your sort of read of the market, where do you think things are going to settle? I think there'll be a hybrid type of work setting for sure. I think, you know, we've proven that we can be productive without being in the office every day. But the physical location dilemma that you described earlier will have to be figured out by the individual. You'll, I, I think you're going to need to show up in the office a certain amount of time each month. I don't know if it's three days a week or four days a month or whatever, but you're going to have to show up because I think employers expect the collaboration to happen. There's team building activities that can really only be uh, done, I think, in person. Sure, there's remote team building and all the rest, but how effective is that? I don't know. You know, there's there's certainly proof to show that when you're in person, you're building the kinds of relationships that build trust and all that. It's hard hard to do. You know, I think about a kid graduating in 2020, getting a job, and being fully remote and having no clue. Mm. You know, <laughs> having no feel for what this is going to really be like. And I've seen some of the, the younger people in the companies that I'm working with at the moment struggle as they start to have to actually come to the office. Yeah. You yeah. Know, because they're so used to being able to do work in their pajamas and all of a sudden they can't. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I see a hybrid world for the, for sure, but I think you're going to have to come to the office on, a, on some kind of regular cadence. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm, I'm talking to a lot of young people at the moment where, where you hear this, it's really hard for our generation. And there's that real sense of a, not quite a lost generation, but a really challenged generation because their education's been massively disrupted. Mm. If they were at university in the pandemic, their first job's been disrupted. So they just haven't had the opportunity to learn and grow all the soft skills as well as the hard skills that you, that you get from being in the office environment. So I, I see that a lot. A theme that kind of goes along with that then is the challenges for leaders today that they're having to operate where there is no playbook because nobody's ever had to manage these kind of dynamics before. Well, not for, not for many decades has been this, this amount of disruption in the global corporate organizational environment. Are you seeing a lot of leaders who are, who are struggling with, with the degree of uncertainty ahead and, and figuring out how to lead in that kind of context? Yeah, I, I think some folks are overwhelmed by the, the sort of emphasis on you've got to be empathetic. Uh, we have to worry about mental health. We've got to make sure our leaders are sensitive to the needs and wants of everyone on their team. You know, I, I, I think a lot of leaders are sitting going, what, what? Am I supposed to be a psychologist now? Huh? You know? You, you need me to let you have time off because your dog is sick. Like what? You know, <laughs> I'm seeing, I'm seeing like uh, 
that kind of stuff, which we really didn't see before the pandemic. You know, there, certainly decency is an important and always has been and always will be an important part of being a great leader. You know, you've got to be decent. But, but all this other stuff that we seem to have put on the backs of anyone we call a leader is, is I think, tough for them to even understand or, where to, or know where to begin to become you know. And what's your reality check on that? So when somebody comes to you and they, you know, in a coaching session and they go, look, these are all the things I think I'm supposed to be doing. So everyone's telling me I'm supposed to be doing it. What do you say? Well, I use a, a, a thing that I learned a while ago, and it's from a, a really, you know, accomplished leader. His name is Harry Kramer. He was the former CEO of, of Baxter International. And he was interviewed one time after they had to go through a major layoff. He was laying off, I think, tens of thousands of people in one fell swoop. And the business columnist asked him, you know, like, how do you sleep at night doing this to all these people? And he said something that I thought was really, really clever and, and something that I, I use and I bring forward in my coaching. And that's sort of what I've called the decency acid test. I even wrote about it in an article a few years ago for CEO World. But it's that idea of, did I do what I thought was right? And did I do my best? And if I can answer yes to both of those questions, then I can sleep at night. And I, and I kind of feel the same way when leaders come to their coaching session with me and they start to talk about being overwhelmed with all this push towards you know, mental health of their employees and, you know, this kind of stuff. And I go, well, let's apply the, the decency acid test. Did you do what you thought was right? Did you do your best? You know, and if you can answer yes, then then you're okay. You know, and, and it won't be perfect, but keep working at it. And yeah, I mean, to be clear, I, I don't want to say that I'm I'm against leaders being empathetic. No, absolutely not. I think that's part of being a decent human being. You've got to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and see the world through their eyes. And, and I think to the degree leaders can do that, they're going to be more effective because they'll be coming from the standpoint of the person they're leading versus from their own you know, preconceived notions of what you know, good is supposed to look like. And they can adjust. They can adjust their behavior. They can adjust their influence in how they lead to be effective with that particular individual or, or team. So I don't want to say I'm against it, but I do think we're putting a lot of undue pressure on people to, to become mental health experts when really they might be just really great engineers who lead an engineering group. Yeah, and <laughs> you know? I, I think that's really, really well said. And I think that you know what, what I'm learning about leadership is, is how unique an individual it is. And trying to force anybody into a model that just isn't them, it's never successful. People can evolve and grow and learn new things and have new perspectives for sure. But any more than there used to be one model of leadership, was, which was the only way to be, you know, that wasn't the right answer. Equally, the, you know, this, this kind of leadership model that you describe is, you know, for some people, that's going to be exactly how they want to lead. But for some people or for some context, that's just not not the right kind of way for them to be. And, and, and I really like that idea that you're bringing through around kind of giving people permission to say, well, you know, if you, if you did your best, then, then that's okay, you know, and, and, and keep working and keep learning and keep, keep kind of growing. 
You know, I think that's the power mm. in the coaching relationship to to support leaders, particularly in in this kind of time of uncertainty. Now, I know you're you're the world's number one thought leader, according to the Thinker Three Hundred and Sixty in coaching. And I'd love to get your take for people that are thinking about either, you know, maybe they're thinking about starting coaching or finding a coach. What would you say is the right time for a leader to start working with a coach? I think if you're leading, you need an objective third party who's going to help keep it real for you. So I think the time to begin is as soon as you start to lead others, because you're going to need that perspective. You'll get all kinds of feedback. Not all of it's good. You know, if it's somebody from a, from your team, chances are there's some sort of self-fulfillment that they're looking for. If it's from someone you're working for, again, they may have parochial interests in mind. So you really need, I believe, to have someone outside of that who really cares about you and is trying to help you become the best leader you can possibly be. And, and find somebody that you can build that kind of a trust relationship with and, and do the work. It's hard work. It's change. You know, it's personal change. It's learning new stuff. But, but find someone that can bring that to you, and I think you'll become an exceptional leader. What, what does coaching with you feel like? It's really personalized. I mean, I, I tend to sell coaching programs into you know, mid-sized and larger corporates where they may have 10 or 12 people that they want to coach up to either help with succession planning or maybe they're new to leadership and they want to get them level set so they can be effective. Or they may even be at the senior level and they're trying to take on more than they ever have in the past and they need, again, an objective third party to kind of help. Uh, be a, if nothing else, a, a sounding board and an, and an accountability buddy. So, you know, that's kind of where I, I think I thrive, you know, it's being able to bring a program forward, personalize it to the organization, and then from there, personalize it to each person I'm coaching. Mm. And we spend, you know, my typical program might, might span six months and it may have 25 one-on-one -on -one sessions baked into it. So it's a lot of, a lot of time, uh, commitment, but I think people get a lot out of it because mm -hmm. I've had really nothing but really positive reaction to all of, all of that work. And then the finance director turns around and goes, this is very expensive. I know you've written some articles on the return on investment from, from coaching. So right. how do organizations see a return on, on coaching? Well, you know, it's a great question. And, and yeah, Gary, and you're, I think if, if I recall, Thinkers 360, if you're, in, I think you're, are you number two on that list? Now? Well, <laughs> yes, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm behind you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm not, I'm not offering any ideas that you don't already uh, have, but, but, but for, for me, you know, it, it's about trying to help them recognize the value of having better leadership, meaning better decisions, meaning better customer satisfaction, meaning, you know, uh, uh, an enthusiastic workforce, uh, a positive culture, you know, all those things 
are valuable. So whatever they're spending on coaching is a mere pittance to what they're getting by having, you know, really effective and exceptional leaders mm. in, the, in their community of leaders. Fantastic. And the last question, um, there's actually a, a new book that's coming out this week, um, written by Marshall Goldsmith and Scott Osman and Jacqueline Lane called Becoming Coachable. And I'm really interested, you know, hearing from, you know, really seasoned, really experienced coaches. If you're talking to somebody, you know, who is, who is going into a coaching relationship, so they're the coachee, what advice would you give them to get the most out of their coaching relationship working with their coach? Well, I, you know, the first thing is leave the ego at the door because if you're going to start a coaching a relationship and you're really defensive and you have an excuse for everything that's not going well and, and you have a reason for why you're not leading others in the best way possible, it's going to be hard to, to break through. So instead, if you can kind of go, come in with a growth mindset that you're here to learn, you're here to practice, you're in a safe space, there is no judgment, there's, you know, you're going to learn some stuff that could be really valuable and you want to make, make it part of your leadership uh, repertoire, then, um, then now you're open to learning. Now you're, you're open to the coaching. And you are, as Marshall would say, you know, you're coachable. Fantastic. Jim, how can people find out more about you and the work that you do? Yeah, well, you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. I would also offer that if you're interested in either the consulting side or the coaching side of the business, check out indispensable-consulting.com and you'll find all kinds of content there as well. And of course, uh, follow the podcast, Indispensable Conversation. There's a lot of great thought leaders, like one, Dr. Gary, right here, <laughs> <laughs> who, was, who was just on the show a couple of weeks ago. Fantastic. And we'll put the links in, in our show notes as well. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For leadership and coaching global thought leader, Jim Kerr, it was a powerful conversation with a mentor early in his career that helped him to not feel afraid of success. Check out his book on Amazon. It's called Indispensable, Build and Lead a Company Customers Can't Live Without. Jim, thank you so much for sharing your story and your insights and for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. It was a huge honor and pleasure, Gary. Thanks so much for inviting me and keep up the incredible work you're doing here. Thanks so much. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.